He is the preaching and vision pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. After studying at Wheaton College, he earned degrees at Fuller Theological Seminary and the University of Munich. He taught at Bethel College in St. Paul for six years and then in 1980 became the pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church where he has served for 30 years as a pastor. That alone is worth applauding. Thank you, Lord. He and his wife, Noel, have four grown sons, one daughter, and 12 grandchildren. Dr. Piper has authored more than 30 books, has served on a number of boards, and is in much demand, I'm sure, as a conference speaker. All of this would, would make him being here today an honor, and I'm sure you would agree with that, but, but there's more, more reason why we are grateful to have Dr. Piper this morning. Dr. Piper has been a dear friend of Sovereign Grace Ministries, and as I mentioned, that is a family of churches that we're a part of, and yet I can say that his life, his ministry, his counsel have had a profound effect on Sovereign Grace Ministries, on Crossway Community Church, and on my life in particular. I think there are few men who have had a greater impact on the body of Christ, increasing our vision and our passion for the Savior than Dr. Piper. And so this morning, in, in realizing his schedule, and the, the conference schedule he's had just this past week, uh, we were fortunate to attend the Desiring God conference uh, at, at Willington just the last two days. By all rights, he should have been flying home yesterday, and he stayed to be here with us. Uh, Dr. Piper, we are grateful, and I hope you're grateful, and we want to give thanks to God. So would you welcome with me Dr. Piper as he comes to preach to us. Thank you, Tony, and uh, thank you, Fred, and thank you, Pat, who stood right here to lead. Uh, the best part of that introduction for me is, is it's true that I consider myself a privileged friend of Sovereign Grace Ministries and now uh, Crossway Community Church, so that's not a small thing for me. I value those kinds of relationships very much. They have gone deep with me, so if there's been any benefit flowing this way, no, it has gone the other way as well, in, in fact, uh, increasingly so. We're reading a, a book that has emerged out of Sovereign Grace Ministries in our pastoral care group. We call them small groups. And uh, it's having a deep effect on us as a little pastor cluster. So it's Quite an honor to be a part of this worship service, and for all the guests, thanks so much for, for coming. Let me pray that God would make this a really fruitful few minutes for us as we look at His Word and, and uh, lay ourselves open to His Spirit. So, Father, please come and don't leave me to the resources of my flesh, my mind, just what I am by nature. Grant that you would 
show up in power, that there would be a kind of anointing, empowering. Peter said, let him who serves, serve in the strength that you supply, Lord, that in everything you might get the glory through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the dominion forever. So that's what I would like to do. I would like to lean on you heavily now. Have you move in power that you would save sinners, that you would build up and strengthen the saints, that you would reconcile those who are at odds with each other, that you would lift burdens where people feel oppressed and discouraged and frustrated and some who are very embittered in this service. And I pray that you would give guidance to students who are on the brink of decisions and they don't know whether to stay in school or leave school or take this major or that major or marry this person or not marry or go to this field or that field or how to relate to mom and dad who are so alienated. God, there are just a hundred things you could do right here that I don't know anything about. And I'm asking you to come and do way beyond what my designs are for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. I'm going to talk about worship and what the inner essence of it is with a view to the kind of God that would require that, expect that, and what it says about Him, and with a view to how it would affect your lives and and your corporate gatherings, as well as your individual walks. So that's the plan. Let me begin with some surprising, at least they were to me, surprising facts about the way worship changes as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, um, the most common word for worship, hishtahava, used 171 times, is translated in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, 164 of those 171 times as proskuneo. I only mention that because that's the main word for worship then in the Old Testament. And as the New Testament was being written in Greek, with that being the main word at its disposal to use for worship, there are some um, amazing statistics. It is common in the Gospels. Four Gospels, used 26 times. It's common in the book of Revelation, used 21 times. It doesn't occur in the epistles at all, except... Once in 1 Corinthians, where a person comes into the church and falls down because they are prophesied over, and, uh, and then a couple times in Hebrews, which is quoting the Old Testament. In other words, in his earthly life, there's this use of the word worship. In his heavenly life, as you have elders and, and uh, angels falling down before him, it's, it's used. And in the middle, where we live, it's not there. Here's a, here's a take on that. The word at its root means to bow down. And in bowing down, to reverence and express 
admiration and adoration, but fundamentally a physical act of falling down before somebody. While Jesus was on the earth, people did that. They ran up to him and fell down. It's used that way regularly. In heaven, in the book of Revelation, where you see it, that's what they do. The 24 elders fall down and the angels fall down. Because he's there. He's there. Physically. So you can do this physical thing in his presence. Now, he's not here physically. And when he left, he had set things up in a way that worship has taken on a less formal, less physical, less localized and spatial dimension and has gone penetratingly inside human beings for its essence. Authentically, it was all, always there. I'm not, things, I'm not saying that in the Old Testament there was an authentic inner experience of God in worship. I'm saying Jesus, during His lifetime, began to do things and say things in a way that began to strip worship of its localized, physical, geographic, external prominence and drove it in. And let me just give you a couple of examples of how he was doing that during his life before we look at one key text together. Um, he met this woman who'd been married five times at the well in Samaria. He was boring into her heart on the search for a worshiper, I believe. And uh, she raised the question about where you should worship. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's setting up a controversy. This mountain or that mountain. Now what will Jesus do there? He's got a choice between two places. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. He's not even going to go there. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit. And in truth, for such people, the Father is seeking to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So how did He answer her? You want me to respond to this mountain versus that mountain? I'll tell you my response. In neither mountain, rather in spirit and truth. See the category shift? He's shifting the whole conversation from geography to spirit and truth. And that's what he does. Throughout his earthly life, he's making those changes. Remember, he said this, something greater than the temple is here. What do you mean by that? Me! You want a place? Here it is. Amazing. Destroy this temple 
and in three days I'll raise it up. You want a place to worship? From now on, everywhere on planet Earth, I'm the place. Christianity, among major religions, has zero geographic center. There is no Mecca. There is no Jerusalem. Not even Wheaton, Illinois. Or Colorado Springs. There is no geographic center. There's one center. His name is Jesus. I am the temple. I am the sacrifice. I am the priesthood. I am the Holy of Holies. The whole New Testament begins now to do what Jesus began to do and unpack worship in terms of an inner experience of the living Christ who loved us, gave himself for us, rose from the dead, and called us to experience something in relation to him fundamentally, essentially. And then you read the New Testament looking for, how do we do this? How do we do this? Like, should we do it with guitars and, and keyboards and drums or organs and choirs? And, and how should we do this? And guess what? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing in the New Testament about that. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's a missionary handbook for the nation. And they do it differently everywhere. This is so unbelievably cultural. This is just perfect for this audience. And totally would not work in China. At least some villages in China. <laughs> I don't know about the university. Maybe it would. The New Testament is silent on this. And I'm so glad. I love what we did here. I'm just totally there with these songs. Oh, they're so gospel-laden, so Christ-exalting, and for whatever reason, I like the tunes. I'm, I'm real there. But the New Testament doesn't care much about that. What does the New Testament care about? The question I'm asking is this. What is now the inner essence of the thing called worship. If the proskuneo was prominent physically as people fell down to Jesus in the Gospels, if the proskuneo is there prominent as people in their glorified state fall down before Jesus in heaven, and the proskuneo is gone here as an external falling down before something, what is it in here? I want to know what is the essence of it. And so would you open your Bible, if you have one, and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Because I believe this is perhaps the clearest uh, opening, displaying, explaining of what that inner essence is. And please, hear my word, inner essence, to be non-exclusive in its definition of worship. That is, worship is more than what I'm saying. It's just not less. I want the essence. And then as it takes its various forms, 
outwardly in the community and outwardly in corporate gatherings and small groups and wherever it starts to get out in forms, I want to be sure it's always this. Whatever else it is, it's always this. This is what I care about most at my church. You choose worship leaders at our church. You don't audition for voice, mainly. You audition for this. Is this experience a reality in their lives? If not, they're not standing up there and singing. So Philippians chapter 1 We're going to look at, I believe, what Paul shows us to be the inner essence of worship. Start at verse 20 of chapter 1. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, ashamed in anything, but that uh, with all boldness or with all courage, Christ would, even now, as always, be, now your version may say exalted, or it may say honored, or it may say magnified, the Greek megaluno, you can even hear the feel of it, mega made much of, magnified. Christ would be exalted, honored, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is saying the number one prime, central passion, expectation of his life is that Christ would be honored, magnified, made much of, put on display as beautiful and and infinitely valuable in his life and in his death. That's what verse 20 says. Now, the question becomes, I'm going to make an assumption here, I hope you'll agree, When it talks about Christ being magnified, that's what worship is. Worship is the showing the worth, worship, the worth of Christ. So he's saying there in verse 20, without using the word worship, my eager expectation and hope, this passion in my life is that Christ would be worshipped, Christ would be magnified, Christ would be honored, Christ would be exalted, Christ would be shown worthy, valuable, Precious, a treasure. It's what I want my life to do. Now the question becomes then, okay, Paul, we got that. What experience inside of you does that? What experience, what subjective experience of Christ inside of you would yield corporate worship services, small group prayers, sacrifices, love, daily life that displays His worth. What is that inner inner experience? And He gives the answer in verse 21. 
And he shows that it's the answer by the connecting word for. So you see that? Um, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, magnified in my life, in my body, whether by life or death, for... So this is a, a ground support, an argument, and an, expect, an explanation of, of what he just said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain, explains how Christ is magnified in my living and dying. Now, to, to see that, notice the pairs, right? You've got a pair in 20 and a pair in 21. In 20, you have life and death. And in 21, you have to live and to die. So there's a parallel. And he's explaining how life and death in verse 20 can magnify Christ by referring to an experience that he has in dying and in living. So what we need to do is take the parallels from death and dying and life and living and see how that works. How's he thinking? That's what we want. I want to get inside Paul's head here as to how it is that in his, let's just take the dying pair, in his Death, Christ will be magnified. So he was, here's the way he says it. Just leave out the life pair and read it like this. It is my eager expectation and hope that now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body. That is, in my death. For to die is gain for me. That's the argument. Christ is shown to be magnificent in my dying if I experience my dying as gain. Now, there's a premise missing in that argument. It almost works, but it doesn't work yet. Because the question arises, why is it gain? Why is dying gain for you? such that when you die that way, Christ is shown to be magnificent. And the missing premise is given in verse 23. My desire is to depart, and that is to die, and be with Christ. For that is far and away better. Better than what? Well, anything that life offers. Because you lose everything when you die, except what you gain by dying. And what he gains by dying is Christ. That's what he says in verse 23. My desire is to depart and not go to play endless golf or fish or climb mountains. I want Christ. And I get more of Christ when I'm dead. So I want to die. That's what he said. Now, he doesn't kill himself, and that's sin. He 
says it's more necessary on your account that I'll stay behind. But if he were just choosing for his own private pleasures, he would just die because that would be gain. So now we have it. What is the inner essence of the experience that makes Christ look magnificent in dying? The inner essence of the experience that makes Christ look magnificent in dying is experiencing dying as tremendous gain, joy, satisfaction. I have used for, I don't know when I first used it, 30 years, 20 years, the phrase, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. To capture the essence of what makes me tick. If you ever heard that and wondered, where do you get that? I got it right here. Christ is most magnified in my dying when I am most satisfied in Him in my dying. It's right there. I didn't make this up. I just made it rhyme. It's just all there, and it's absolutely magnificent. Another way to say it, if you like little slogans, is the essence of praising Christ is prizing Christ. That's so important. There are so many Christians who have externalized praise. So that it really does consist in singing. It doesn't. It consists in prizing first. And if the prizing isn't there, the singing makes God hold His nose. This people honors me with their lips and their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Matthew 15, 8. In vain. Oh, forbid it, God. Please, I'm a pastor. Forbid that I would preach in vain or sing in vain or counsel in vain. And you can. This could all be in vain. God sees whether it's not or is by seeing right to their hearts. Pat's heart here is either there and prizing Christ so that what's coming out is not vain or he's not prizing Christ, so what's coming out is vain. The inner essence of worship is, in my death, I will experience you as gain. I leave wife, children, dreamed of retirement, maybe at age 21, I dreamed of marriage, and anything else that the next 50 years was to hold. And I'm going home with leukemia at age 21. How do you make Christ look good at that moment? I'm talking about a fellow named Zach. And he made Christ look beautiful 
by calling death sweet names. That was what his father wrote me. He called death sweet names near the end. Here's another little sloganeering way to say it. Worshipping Christ above all is wanting Him above all. This is, this is radical. Because doing the stuff, preaching, singing, that's easy. Feeling with authentic desire, Christ as more of a treasure than an iPad, that's hard. At least for some people. Or more, more desired than family. Or, get that strange lump here, more desired, more desired than health. More desired than finishing the career. More to be desired than anything. Supremely valuable in your inner experience is impossible. This is a work of divine, regenerating, sanctifying grace which puts us on our faces crying out to God over and over, Oh God, make Yourself real to me. Make Yourself precious to me. Do you, do you get up in the morning and pray Psalm 90 verse 14? Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you all the days of my life. Why did the psalmist pray that? Because he didn't feel it when he woke up. That's why. And you don't either most of the time. So let's just get real and get on the quest. The, the, the aim of this sermon is to just to get you on the right quest. Not to externalize this thing and say, I've got to get a better voice. I've got to get my fingers working here better. I've got to get my drums better. I've got to get my preaching better. That's not the quest. The quest is, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. Make me like the deer that pants after the water brook. Wean me off of pornography. Wean me off of my love affair with the praise of man. Wean me off of my craving need to be approved by others. Oh God, rescue this idolatrous heart and make yourself supremely valuable. That's the quest for worship. Oh, may God work it in you. It's a miracle. You've got to get serious about this. It won't happen accidentally. You get on a road. We talk at Bethlehem about going hard after God on Sunday morning. Going hard after God. And now, and now I hope it's clear to my people, what do, what do you mean going hard after God? Like going hard to work for God? No! Going hard to drink God. Eat God. Savor God. Be satisfied in, in God. What about the life pair? We skipped right over that. Verse 20 again. My expectation is that Christ be exalted in my life. For to me to live is Christ. So now how does he explain that Christ will be exalted in his living? When he gets up in the morning to when he goes to bed, his living. How will Christ be shown to be magnificent? 
supremely valuable in his heart by his living. Not his dying, but his living. And he says, for to me to live is Christ. What does he mean by that? And he gives the answer to that in chapter 3, verse 8. Why don't you look at that with me? Chapter 3, verse 8. Here's the way he unpacks for me to live as Christ. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord now. 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 Not in the hospital room only just before I die, but now. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Notice the word gain showing up again. Only this time it's not to die as gain. It is gain now. Christ is his gain now. To live as Christ means experiencing Christ as gain now. So you walk through the airport this afternoon, you get on the plane, and, and there are these values commending themselves. You open up a typical airplane magazine, it's shooting clearly at one lifestyle, and it's, it's constantly telling you, you need this, you need this kind of chair, you need this kind of exercise thing, you, you need this, these are really attractive To live as Christ means you look at those and you say, sort of, not really, not really, not compared to Christ. Right now on this plane, when I get off the plane, when I go home, Christ is supremely valuable. Now, I've just laid the foundation for a few implications that we'll, we'll draw out. The inner essence of worship, I'm arguing, is uh, lots of different ways to say it. Prizing Christ, being satisfied with Christ, treasuring Christ. It's the kind of language we use around our church. I feel the absolute necessity of this kind of language, this affectional language of prizing and satisfaction and delighting and enjoying and experiencing pleasure and being satisfied and treasuring and cherishing, all, all, that, all that cluster of words are designed to keep people on the hook until they're really saved. I mean, new! Television is not viewed the same. Internet is not viewed the same. Money is not viewed the same. Family is not viewed the same. Because inside here, a, a revolution of valuing and cherishing and treasuring and enjoying and being pleased and being satisfied, it's all changed. And we're not in bondage anymore to the cravings of the world. And we're ready to die. What, what an amazing liberty. To do radical things. You students, dream a radical dream. Don't dream an ordinary dream and fit into the American or Canadian culture and just vanish in insignificance as you get rich, fat, lazy, and scared to death when you die. 
Don't go there. Go here. It's got to happen now. It doesn't have to happen now. God could do it 20 years from now, but that's risky. Do it now. Settle it now. Who's your value? Who's the inner satisfying treasure of your heart? The kingdom of heaven is like man who found a treasure hidden in a field. He covered it over and went and sold everything he had in his joy and bought that field. That's Christianity. Now, what are, what are some of the implications? Here's, here are three implications for God and three implications for worship. It won't take too long. Number one, for God. What this implies for what God is like is that God is absolutely self-sufficient and doesn't need you. Acts 17.25 God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. For He Himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So the God we have is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need us at all. And believe me, that is Totally good news. Because the second implication for God is, therefore, He doesn't need your service. He serves you. The Son of Man didn't come into the world to be served. You've been trying to serve Jesus? He didn't come to be served. But to give His life as a ransom for many. This is the best view of God in the universe. A God who doesn't need me and is totally there for me with infinite resources. If I will have it. If I will count Him my treasure. Of course, if I'm going off and drinking at the cesspools of the world and then just bringing Him in to fill the gaps, He's not impressed. He does not like that. That dishonors His all-sufficiency. But if you just let Him be God for you, His eyes roam throughout the whole world seeking to show Himself powerful on behalf of those whose heart is whole toward Him. Getting old is a good thing in the Bible. And I'm enjoying it. Listen to this picture of God contrasted with the false gods of Babylon and today. Bel, that's the name of another god in Nebo, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts of livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Now, got the picture? This is Isaiah 46. You got the picture? The gods of Babylon has to be carried. This is mockery. He's mocking them. Rightly so. Oh, you carry your God on a, on a wagon. <laughs> they stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. 
I have made, I will bear, I will carry, I will save. I want a God like that. I don't want a God who needs me to carry him. No way. I'm getting old. You young people think you, you can carry God. You can't. In a minute, you're flat on your back with a broken neck and have to decide with Johnny Erickson, Tata, whether you're going to mope the rest of your life or let him serve you and make something of your broken life. And they're all broke. So that's implication number one is that he, he's all sufficient and doesn't need me. Implication number two is that he serves me and what a great God it is to have him serving me as I trust him. And uh, the last implication is that God's self-exaltation is, is love. Because he really does pursue worship. Said that, Jesus. God seeks people to worship him. And you could easily turn God into a megalomaniac, right? <laughs> He's got to be worshipped. Poor, poor, needy, ego God. He's just got to be worshipped. Please worship me, worship me. Please worship me because I feel so bad if you don't worship me. That's like a sick person in need of praise. And a lot of people have made God out to be that. Michael Prowse in the London Financial Times said that explicitly a few years ago as he was writing a book review. That's not the case. The case is this. When God exalts himself and calls for worship, and worship is a being satisfied in him and getting joy from him, the summons to worship is an act of love. Because you get the benefit. We get the joy, he gets the glory. Such a deal. It's the best of all possible universes. God is exalted and I'm satisfied in enjoying Him because God is most glorified when I'm most satisfied in Him. So the higher He goes, the higher my happiness goes. Now let me close by pointing out just a few implications, not for God and what He's like, but for what, what you do in worship, corporate worship, singing. I really believe you should do what we just did here. I love it. I love to speak into it and out of it. Implication number one. Maybe I'll just give you three. I've got lots, but I'll just do three. The pursuit of joy in God, therefore, in view of everything I've said, is not optional. It's your highest worship duty. This, millions of Christians strive against this statement. Your calling, your duty, your passion in worship should be the pursuit of your joy, your joy in God. It's deadly where that is rejected. And I grew up, and I assume it's still basically true, breathing an atmosphere that says, if you seek your own happiness, you're doing something morally defective. Just kind of hangs in the air. I feel like, mm. and I'm saying that if you don't make your supreme passion in corporate worship the pursuit of your joy in God, you destroy worship. I don't care what you do 
in that service. Worship ceases. So a lot of pastors, I think, are cutting themselves off at the knees if they bark at their people with statements like, you people are always coming here to get, get, get. If you just come in here to give once in a while, we'd have some life in this service. That's not true. They're just coming to get the wrong thing. They're coming to get titillated by a good choir or a riff or whatever. Just That's not what we're coming to get. We're coming to get God. We're coming to get joy in God. We're coming to get healed by God. We're coming to get forgiveness from God. We're coming for Him. If you don't show up here and satisfy my soul, I'm going to be addicted to everything in the world and I'll become a sinner and I'll go to hell. I need you. That's what, that's what fires worship. So first implication is pursue your joy in worship like a deer pants for the water brook. Number two, a second implication of, of saying that the interessence of worship is satisfaction in God is that it makes worship God-centered, radically God-centered. Nothing makes God more supreme, more central than a gathered people who collectively say money, prestige, leisure, family, job, health, sports, toys, friends are as nothing compared to God. You, you have a group of people coming together and they say that out loud. They feel that in their hearts. You've got an electric moment of God-centeredness like never before. So the implication of this is that cultivating in yourself and in your church the inner experience of being satisfied in God as the essence of worship will make worship radically god Centered. Number three, and finally, a third implication is that this way of viewing worship as having its inner essence in being satisfied in God is that it will preserve worship as an end in itself. I believe worship is the end of the universe. It's the goal of all things. And it should be now. Now, I don't mean services are the goal of all things. I mean the inner experience of having God as our supreme treasure. Feeling that, living that, is the end and goal of all things. There are a lot of pastors, I fear, and people who make worship a means to an end. We worship to raise money. We worship to attract crowds. We worship to heal human hurts. We worship to recruit workers. We worship to improve church morale. We worship to give talented musicians an opportunity to fulfill their calling. We worship to teach our children the way of righteousness. We worship to help marriages stay together. We worship to evangelize the lost. We worship to motivate people to service projects. We worship to create a family feeling in our church. And on and on, turning worship into a means 
to all these other ends and thus denying worship as an end in itself. You can't say to your wife, I feel a strong delight in you so that you will make me a nice supper. Something wrong with that. Because she would feel, hmm, you feel a strong delight in me so that I would make you a nice supper. I think you want supper. I think you like supper. And she's right. You can't say it. If your delight doesn't terminate on her, but makes her a stepping stone to the thing you want her to do, you haven't honored her. And if you do that with God, you haven't honored Him. We're going to worship here. Raise a lot lot of money. If it's authentic, if it's real, we get a lot of money. No, no, no. no. That doesn't work. God sees that. You can't say to your son, I love playing ball with you. I love playing ball with you so that you'll happily cut the grass this afternoon. can't say Do you love playing ball with me? Or you love me cutting grass? You can't say that love playing ball with me is a means to cutting the grass and have me feel really honored by your playing ball with me. You get it? So... Saying with authenticity, you are my delight. You are my treasure. You're my supreme value. Saying that guards you from turning this moment into a means for a thousand good things. But keeping Him right there with your heart terminating on Him in joy, not making that joy a means to anything. Now, lest you misunderstand... I believe with all my heart that when you authentically delight in your wife, everything goes better. But if you do it to make everything go better, the delight is compromised. Same in the church. If God is authentically loved, corporately and individually, and there's this great sense, He is everything. He's the end. Whatever the crowds are, whatever the money is, He's everything. That will have a ripple effect for good everywhere. But if you try to make it a means to all those goods everywhere, it will cease to be pleasing in God's eyes and it will cease to be an end in itself. Let me close with a summary now. Christ reoriented the thinking about worship in the New Testament, taking the emphasis off of this mountain or that mountain onto this spirit and truth. And I am the temple, and I am the priesthood, and I am the sacrifice, and I am the reward. So everything was shifting off of place and form onto Christ. Second, Paul defines the inner essence of that experience with Christ as gain. I count it as gain in my life and gain in my dying. Christ is my treasure. Christ is my satisfaction. Christ is my joy, my delight, my all. That's the inner essence of worship. Third, God is the kind of God, therefore, who seeks to be glorified 
most in our being most satisfied in Him. And that's the best kind of God you could possibly imagine. That He would seek to exalt His name in your joy in Him. All His omnipotence devoted to my everlasting happiness in Him. Fourth, therefore your vocation should first and foremost be to pursue joy in Him above all. Mind you, it's a dangerous quest. Jesus said things like, you may have to cut off your hand to do it. You may have to gouge out your eye to do it. You will have to take up your cross and die to many things which your flesh right now is telling you you have to have in order to be happy. It is not an easy quest. It's a dangerous quest. And it will take some of you, I'm praying, God do this, to places that they don't want you to come and the gospel is needed there and it will be very costly for you to be there. But you won't be there without Jesus and you won't be there without joy. And finally, therefore, take up a lifestyle that displays Christ as your supreme treasure. If you really do experience Christ within as a supreme treasure, everything changes. There's a lifestyle that will begin to, it, it will be sacrificial and it will be loving. The, the good of people will rise and your own security and comforts will go down because Christ is everything to you. Christ is everything to you. All we have is Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my heart leaps with love to you and trembles at my sin. Standing in front of these folks, knowing the ego trip it is for people to come hear you speak and the dangers. It is so fraught with dangers. So I both am delighting right now and trembling right now. And I just want to say out loud, my heart's desire is that you would be all to me, and I now want to turn that out to, to the brothers and sisters here, or any for whom Christ is a distant thought. Lord, draw us closer to You and thus closer to each other. More of Christ. Open the eyes of our heart to see the treasure that You are. So that we can say, all, all I have 